In the race for a coronavirus vaccine, there's reason for cautious optimism. Two pharmaceutical companies have signaled that some vaccines may be available for emergency youth authorization by the end of this year, and some targeted groups could get it coming in spring. As the much-awaited vaccine nears, health officials caution that it's not a panacea. Social distancing and masks will remain key even after vaccinations have begun. For the San Diego Union Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is your San Diego News Fix. Jonathan Wozen, you're the Union Tribune's biotech reporter, and you've been covering the vaccination element of the pandemic. Since we last spoke a couple months ago, how far along have companies gotten in, you know, creating this much-awaited vaccine? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and things have definitely changed a whole lot from, I think we first spoke in April, right after I joined the paper. And, and you know, at this point, we can say there's more than 150 different vaccines that are at some stage of development. Uh, more than 40 of those are at some stage in clinical trials. And we have uh, roughly 10 or a bit more than that that are in large scale, uh, what they call phase three clinical trials, where you actually test whether the vaccine protects people against COVID by enrolling essentially tens of thousands of volunteers, giving about half of them vaccine, half placebo, and then comparing disease rates between those groups. So in the US, we have four large phase three trials. Uh, we have San Diegans who are actually participating in all four of those. Uh, so that's AstraZeneca, Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson. And then of those four, Pfizer and Moderna have signaled that they could be in a position to apply for emergency use authorization by uh, late November or sometime in December based on what the data is. So that may or may, they may or may not have enough data to support that the vaccine is safe, that it really works. Uh, but the earliest they envision doing that would be the end of this year. Um, you know, Alex Azar from Health and Human Services, his, his kind of ideal timeline is that some doses of vaccine could be available to people in really high risk groups by the end of this year and then available to a much broader uh, sector of the country by essentially, I think, late March, early April. Uh, those are really rosy scenarios. And I think a lot of experts would say, we don't think there's gonna be enough vaccine for most Americans until the second half of 2021. Uh, that includes the director of the CDC who's actually said that. So I, I, wouldn't, I would take those projections by the drug companies and by uh, Alex Azar with you know, a, a big grain of salt, but the basic point here is that we're shifting from this question we had early in 2020, of if we'll have a vaccine, and, and to, to really now talking more about when we'll have one and logistically how we're gonna roll it out, who we get it first. Uh, so that tells you something about just how quickly the science has moved. Yeah, it does seem fair enough to say that, you know, Operation Warp Speed has kind of worked because before this, I believe the fastest vaccine that was created was about four years, correct? Yeah, it's, this, is, this is definitely an accelerated timeline for sure. Uh, I mean, accelerated in the sense that companies are doing, you know, the phase one clinical trial where you look at safety in about 40, 45 people, but then also preparing and making enough vaccine for the next phase. So uh, sort of putting things back to back a little more quickly than you typically would, even if the design of the trial is exactly the same. And, you know, it's it's also one of those situations where you don't often have the entire scientific community across the world focused on one problem. So I, I think that also tells you something 
in terms of how quickly things can come together when that happens. And uh, you know, Chinese researchers on January 10th, I believe, uh, shared the DNA sequence, the genetic sequence of the virus, and that allowed researchers basically across the world, including here in San Diego, to begin coming up with possible vaccines. Uh, you know, almost from that moment. Mm-hmm. And when we do get to the point of there is a vaccine available. What are some things that the public should keep in mind when it comes to what this vaccine can and can't do? Because it's human nature to assume that this will solve everything. We know this isn't the case. How should we think about the vaccine, especially in the early phase? Yeah, no, that's a really important question. That's probably the most important question of all. So, you know, that was something I looked at in a story that ran this weekend. I spoke to a number of people at UC San Diego in, in public health. Uh, to understand how to frame this. And I think, you know, Davy Smith, who's an infectious disease expert, had the best way of thinking about it, which essentially is that a vaccine is a tool. It's not a silver bullet. It's not going to be perfect in all likelihood. It is one of many tools that we have. Uh, the other tools we have are the ones that we've been told to use over the past year, <laughs> wearing a mask, social distancing, uh, washing your hands, you know, being careful about things that are in, within your control that can limit your exposure and your likelihood of, of either getting the virus or giving it to somebody else. So if you combine those tools with a vaccine, then there really is a potential to bring down the transmission of COVID pretty significantly uh, in any community where the vaccine's being uh, you know, taken and, and used. Uh, the flip side of that is if you treat the vaccine as kind of the ultimate perfect solution and you forget about wearing a mask and you start gathering indoors with people you don't live with, uh, that could actually undermine the whole effort. And you know the reason for that is that any vaccine that the FDA authorizes uh, has to be at least 50% effective. Uh, that, that might mean 55, that might mean, you know, I think Anthony Fauci has said he's hoping for 70 or 75% efficacy, but it's not in all likelihood going to be 100% effective. So if people get the vaccine thinking that it guarantees that they won't get COVID and that they can't transmit it to others and then forget about all the other tools, each of which plays some role in helping keep you safe, helping keep you from infecting friends and family, uh, that could that problem from abandoning the other strategies could actually overwhelm the kind of moderate or, or, or modest but non-zero uh, benefit that you get from a vaccine. So I think that's Probably the core message is to realize it's not going to be a perfect fix, but uh, anything that's authorized would have to be at least 50% effective. It wouldn't instantly be available to everybody, you know, the day or the week or the month, frankly, that the FDA authorizes this vaccine. Uh, By any measure, it's going to be rolled out in stages. And probably the very first phase of of rollout is going to be for frontline healthcare workers. So, you know, we spoke with uh, nurse practitioners, we spoke with uh, first responders, uh, EMTs who would be at the front of the line to get a vaccine. And that's basically because those are people we need if they're sick, if they can't do their job, uh, the whole healthcare system kind of comes undone to the point where then if other people get COVID and come into the hospital, who's going to take care of them? So it would probably first be first responders, frontline healthcare workers, uh, followed by people who are 65 and up who have 
serious underlying medical conditions that put them at risk of developing severe COVID, people who live in uh, nursing homes in congregate group living situations. And then from there, sort of gradually broadening out to all people 65 and up to uh, you know, students, teachers, people in settings with young adults, um, and essentially, eventually to 100% of the population. So there's some guidelines that the National Academies of, of Medicine had put out in early October at the request of the CDC and NIH. Um, you know, I think we're still waiting for exact specifics in terms of how closely each state will stick to those guidelines. Uh, we know, you know California has made some kind of general statements that, that kind of align with uh, what the National Academies have said, but still waiting on that uh, really granular plan that's going to guide decision-making in San Diego and elsewhere in the state. Mm-hmm. And also a couple of times, um, these vaccine trials have had to be paused. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, so this has happened two times with you know two different vaccines, and actually once with a different, with an antibody treatment, where we've had companies that are running these large studies to see if a treatment works, and have then had to say, all right, we're going to pause the trial for some period of time because a participant got sick. And that's, you know, we've written about that uh, for the paper a few times. And basically what's happening there is that in these studies, when someone gets a vaccine or gets a placebo, they don't know which they're getting. And the person who's giving them that injection doesn't know which they're administering. It's, it's called a double-blinded study. It prevents kind of bias in how people behave and how the results get analyzed. So when someone gets sick, and you know, this in this case, one of the, for AstraZeneca, there was a, a woman in the United Kingdom who had symptoms consistent with uh, spinal inflammation. Uh, so sort of a, a nervous system symptoms. Uh, so in that case, they don't immediately know First of all, if that person got the vaccine, and if they did get the vaccine, is that actually the reason that they have those symptoms? But you still have to, you know, you have to actually get to the answer, get to the bottom of that. So these data safety monitoring boards, which are independent panels of researchers that uh, keep track of the trials and have the uh, jurisdiction when someone gets very sick to say, I suggest that we take a pause here and actually figure out what's going on. So they suggested for both of these trials, AstraZeneca, and as well as with Johnson & Johnson, a little more recently, to take a pause to look at uh, cases of illness. So, and, and so really the, the goal there is to figure out, uh, okay, did this person actually get the vaccine? If they did get the vaccine, is that what caused the symptoms? And if the answers to both those questions are yes, then how do we move forward? Do we recommend continuing? Uh, do, we, do we think that we should probably stop the trial for good? So th- this is how tri- clinical trials normally work. Uh, it's something that people are seeing in real time because we're all paying really close attention to it uh, because of this pandemic. But it, it's actually pretty normal. And I spoke with a couple of scientists locally uh, for trials to pause. They pause, they start, they pause, they start uh, because you're trying to go carefully and, and, and not skip any steps. Uh, so that's essentially what happened with both of these trials, which are uh, have both been cleared by the FDA to start. And I believe UC San Diego, which is involved in both of those trials, uh, may be restarting or resuming as soon as uh, Monday, uh, November 2nd. 
Mm-hmm. So basically, these pauses are a sign that the system is actually working. And even though it sounds scary, it's a good sign when it comes to actually finding this vaccine. Yeah, this, this is basically this is what you want to see from a trial. Uh, and I mean, part of the one way to think about it is that these trials enroll 30,000 people. Sometimes they enroll 60,000 people. So you could imagine finding a group of 60,000 people and not giving them any kind of treatment, just kind of keeping in touch with them over the next year of their life. There's a pretty good chance that somebody may have a heart attack. Somebody may have a stroke. Somebody may die because those are things that happen to us in life as people. So with studies this large, that you know, there's always that possibility that independent of anything related to the trial, you'll have serious medical events that come up. Uh, so figuring out whether it's really a matter of chance or something about your particular vaccine or your particular treatment is is, is always the question, and um, you know it's an important enough question to warrant kind of taking a temporary pause from these trials. Mm-hmm. And uh, somewhat hypothetically, but let's say we get to the point in which there's two vaccines that are really promising, like maybe one is highly effective, one is not as highly effective, but still good enough. What happens? Is one chosen the winner? Do we use both? How does that decision tree work? Yeah, no, it's it's a really, really good question. And I'll, I'll kind of tell you my understanding and what I, I know people are debating around that topic. So it's possible with vaccines A and B, maybe vaccine B works well, but it doesn't work as well for older adults. So we know from historical data, if you look at the flu shot, flu shot typically doesn't work as well for older adults as it does for uh, younger people, younger and middle-aged people. So if you have two vaccines that work uh, well for two different groups of people, then conceivably, you you might get a different vaccine based on your age, based on some other aspect of your medical history, we'll have to to see what comes out from from the data in that sense. Um, Some of these vaccines store very differently. So for instance, Pfizer's vaccine has to be stored at at about minus 90 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, which is a pretty cold, ultra cold uh, freezer type of temperature. It's not not a standard freezer. Uh, Moderna's vaccine also has to be kept cold, but not quite as cold. when we're thinking about, okay, what vaccine or what vaccines can we distribute and use all across the world, not just here in the US or not just in some European countries, it might be that certain vaccines work well in the developing world. So that, that's kind of another consideration. Uh, you know, both, of, both Moderna and Pfizer are using RNA vaccines. Uh, Johnson & Johnson and Um, AstraZeneca are using viral vector vaccines. Um, There are other companies that are using types of vaccines or developing types of vaccines that are more standard, that are more common. Uh, So you got to think about, you know, how easily can we make the doses? So if one vaccine is easier to make in bulk, uh, that's sort of an advantage there as well. Um, Another issue, and just one more thing I'll highlight that that I think is worth thinking about is, well, what if one vaccine what, what if one vaccine is first, kind of crosses the finish line and it, it's like 55% effective and, and the FDA authorizes it to be used uh, as, as you know, the, main, the first main vaccine for the public? Uh, that 
you know, that's better than 0% efficacy, right? But it's not 80%, it's not 90%. So what happens to all the other vaccines that are in clinical trials where they have some people who get the vaccine, some people getting the placebo? Are, are the people in those trials going to want to leave because now there's this other vaccine that's been authorized and and so they just want to get that instead of having this 50-50 chance that they might be getting essentially a, a saltwater injection, which is what the placebos typically are. So once we get that first authorized vaccine, it actually it creates some ethical issues in, in how you proceed with uh, the rest of those trials. Um, and, and you know there's value in continuing those studies, uh, but you could also argue that there's public health a public health argument for uh, potentially getting any vaccine to people as, as quickly as possible. So I think researchers and ethicists and, and public officials are going to have to grapple with those questions uh, pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And also uh, California is playing a role in this as well, saying that they will review any vaccines that are approved by the FDA. Can you explain kind of what brought the state to this uh, point and how this would work? Yeah, so this was something that Governor Gavin Newsom announced uh, last last Monday in a press briefing uh, that, that that he gives, and I think essentially the idea was to demonstrate, you know, that any vaccine that the FDA uh, authorizes, or really to to vet any vaccine that they authorize, uh, with scientists who are here in California. So this would be a panel of uh, eleven scientists, actually two of whom are. Um, San Diegans, or at least based here in San Diego, uh, who would be taking a look at at the data uh, from any of these vaccines that, that kind of you know cross that proverbial finish line to see how safe they are, how effective they are, and then based on their review would would make a recommendation about whether it was appropriate to uh, deploy that vaccine and and uh, for Californians. So, you know, th- this is one of I think several efforts to. Uh, sort of demonstrate to people that the vaccines have been looked at pretty thoroughly and, and rigorously. And uh, I think there's a general sense among a lot of people in the public that there's, uh, to some degree, this process has become politicized and, uh, you know, that the FDA and the CDC have uh, faced a lot of political pressure to move quickly according to a certain timeline of, uh, of, of, of kind of aligning when a vaccine is available uh, with uh, the election, upcoming election. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why I think Gavin Newsom decided to announce that panel. You know, here in San Diego, Scripps Health has a vaccine panel. Uh, one of the doctors who's on the state panel, Dr. Rodney Hood, is also part of a similar panel or advisory board with, with the National Medical Association, the NMA, the NMA, which is an association of African-American physicians. So they're uh, essentially trying to demonstrate to people of color, specifically black people, that um, any vaccine that comes out is something that um, has been you know, thoroughly looked at from uh, black physicians across this country. So I think it, it speaks to this issue of how many people would actually take a vaccine if it were available. And then the polling right now is uh, somewhat concerning. I think the latest numbers for Californians were around, it may have been 57, 58, a little bit less than 60% which may or may not actually be enough of a size, sizable portion of the population to get you what scientists call herd immunity. So that's what happens when enough people in the community 
are protected against the disease, that the virus doesn't have as many places where it can go. So the virus needs a host where it can live and multiply. But if enough people have been vaccinated or if enough people have an immune response because they were exposed and they've recovered and now they have uh, immune protection, then that can lower transmission um, along with you know public health strategies. So I think this is all trying to make sure that when a vaccine comes out that you have enough uh, credibility and, and really you've done enough to uh, take a, a look at it, a close look at it. Mm -hmm. And except from actually, you know, making this thing, are there any other pitfalls or things that the public should keep in mind when it comes to following this race for a vaccine? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the main thing to, to keep in mind, especially since it's not common to, uh, you know, kind of track clinical trials this, this closely is that in general, uh, you know, clinical trials are are designed to rigorously test any treatment, any vaccine. I'll tell you with drugs, you know, 90% of drugs that enter clinical trials don't make it to the end because they fail some test of, of safety or efficacy along the process. Um, you know, with vaccines, it's really, really important that they be safe because you vaccinate healthy people. So where, you know, with a cancer treatment, you're giving to somebody who has you know, breast cancer or colon cancer, uh, you know, there's kind of a higher tolerance in terms of the side effects. Uh, but if somebody's you know, fully healthy, uh, in stable condition, uh, that's one of the reasons why you're seeing these you know, frequent pauses with the trial. So, yeah, I would keep in mind that the process is is designed to be strict, is is designed to be, uh, you know, rigorous. Um, but that even when a vaccine makes it uh, to the end of that that process, that uh, it, you know, vaccine won't work if people abandon other public health strategies, and it also certainly won't work if no one is willing to take it. So those are things that, you know, I'll be keeping an eye on just as a reporter uh, over the course of the next uh, several months. Mm -hmm. All right, Jonathan Mosen, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to the San Diego News Fix. As voters cast their ballots, check out our election coverage all in one place, our elections dashboard. That's sandiegounionchibune.com slash elections dashboard, all one word. To support our journalism, go to unionchib.com slash subscribe. Until next time.